this next couple of weeks. We're going to take a break from the book of Revelation uh, for a couple of weeks, and we're going to kind of focus in on uh, this idea of missions uh, around the world, and uh, we have an opportunity next uh, week to have a missionary uh, come and share with us from Egypt. And uh, so I've asked Foster uh, to come this morning and kind of um, uh, tee up the ball, if you will. Um, so I'm going to tee up the tee upper <laughs> over here. This is uh, Foster, and uh, Foster and Brenda have been coming to our church for uh, the last couple of years. And as uh, I've personally got a chance to get to know uh, Foster a little bit, um, it has uh, become uh, just uh, imperative that uh, you hear some of his story and how God has uh, just used him in, in spreading the gospel. Now, you know as a church, and one of the reasons why I, I want you to hear this is because we have had people uh, from our church, this is part of our DNA, it's part of who we are that have gone uh, literally around the world taking uh, the gospel. We've had uh, you know teams go to uh, Mexico repeatedly. We have had young adults from our church that, that have gone to Indonesia, that have gone to uh, Papua New Guinea, have gone to all over uh, the world with the gospel. And so we want to continue uh, that trend, right? Well, we want to continue to take the gospel not only to our community here, and, and some of us are called to do that, right? But, but some of us are also called to take the gospel uh, worldwide. And so I'm excited. Foster, come share what God has placed upon your heart uh, for us this morning. Great. Well, thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate it. And good morning, everyone. Um, one thing Mark didn't tell you is that, um, and, and that you need to know right away, is I am, I am not a pastor. I am not a teacher. Uh, I am a business guy. So, and, I, and I'm a storyteller. So I'm going to tell some stories this morning. Um, and, you know, really all I am is a child of God trying to live faithfully into where he calls me. And quite honestly, most of the time I suck at that. Can I say that here? Um, see why I don't do this often? Uh, but I, I want to share with you a, a story that from my life over the last 10 years or so. Um, but to, to do that, I need to give you a little context uh, of who I am so that you can understand the rest of the story. Uh, then I do want to tell you a few stories about Egypt. And then I'm going to finish with a question and a challenge for you. And so that's kind of where we're going. As a business guy, I, I like to lay things out. So now you kind of know where we're going. So the, something you need to know about me um, is besides being a businessman and a, and a husband and a father and a father-in-law is that I am an adrenaline junkie. You see, I see nothing wrong with jumping out of a perfectly good helicopter with skis attached to my feet into a 2,000 snowfoot field, snow up to my waist and skiing like crazy and waiting at the bottom for the helicopter to get there and take me to do it again. So I love that. Nor do I think there's anything crazy about hopping on my bicycle and riding through um, southern Israel for five days and, uh, you know, riding literally on the DMZ, the bike path is about as wide as this aisle, and this is Israel, and this is Jordan, and then riding along the Gaza Strip where they tell you, oh, if you hear the siren missiles, you know, the, the warning, get off your bike, lay on the side of the road, and cover your head with your hands. Like, really? That's my defense? Okay. 
whatever. And then, you know, continuing to climb and, and riding 4,300 feet up into Jerusalem. And when they say he went up into Jerusalem, let me tell you, those are some serious hills. Or starting a business where I knew little to nothing about the organization or the, the thing that I wanted to do, but I had enough passion and enough commitment to, to do, start something new and then convince a group of people to come and join me and to see if we could change an industry. You see, I love challenges. I love adrenaline. I love travel and I love adventure right up until God says, Hey, I'd like you to go do this. And then I'm like, well, not really God. Um, I, I become like Jonah. Now, I'm not quite as bad as Jonah who just decides to flee and go the other way and, you know, to go see Tarshish. But I actually start looking at, well, you know, property values in Tarshish might not be so bad. You know, that's, that, that could be, that could be doable. I could see how to do that. So, um, about 10 years ago, Brenda and I and our, our girls were uh, attending another church and Dr. Hani came to, to visit and came to speak. And I remember sitting there listening to his story about planning churches and his ministry of, of training businesses and training people in um, doing things inside the church in Egypt. I mean, and this is not a country that's really friendly to A, Americans, or B, Westerners, or C, Christians. And thinking, oh, thank you, dear Lord, that you did not call me to that ministry. I am so glad that you have given people passion and skills to go do that. I'm just so thankful that's not where you've called me. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was Sunday. And about Tuesday or Wednesday, I get a phone call from the host family that's the, where Dr. Hani is staying. And uh, the dad, his name is Jack, calls me up and says, Hey, Foster, Dr. Hani and I would like to come see you tomorrow. Um, do you have an hour that you could spare for, for us to chat? I'm like, Sure. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I know he's here in the States to raise some money, you know, come see the business guy. And that makes sense to, you know, to do that. And I'm like, great. Sure. Come on over. We have our conversation about 45 minutes into the conversation. I realize he's not asked me for a dime. He's not even talked about money. All he has talked about for the last 45 minutes is how they desperately need people to come to Egypt and to be teachers, to spend time with people, either in Bible studies or just one-on-one -on -one or teaching some business classes. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to ask me to come to Egypt. And the thought doesn't finish going through my little pea brain before he goes, so Foster, I'd like you to come to Egypt. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, it's like Tarshish is looking really good right about now. You know, and, and so I, I start to list all the reasons that I can't possibly go. You know, I've got a growing business. I have a young family. I have an extensive travel schedule. I have these things. And, and it's just, you know, the litany of reasons why I cannot go. So Hani, I, I do my spiel and Hani goes, well, I'm going to pray that God will soften your heart and that he might call you to come to Egypt. Great. And I don't know if you know if you have any Middle Eastern friends, but when they say that they'll pray for you, A, they mean it. And B, it's not just them that'll pray. They'll tell their family and they tell their friends and their friends' friends. And so suddenly I realize, oh great, I now have, you know, all these people praying that God might want me to come to Egypt. Fast forward five years. Yeah, five years. Um, and each year, Hani has come to the U.S. and has you know, spent time with us, and, and we've helped him economically, and we've done different things. And, uh, and also, 
bear in mind that during those five years, I've taken each of my daughters uh, on a mission trip. My oldest one, she and I went to Ethiopia for a couple of weeks and, and, and traveled around there. My younger one, she and I and another dad and, and daughter, the, the, the girls were friends, had uh, gone to Africa for a month. Mark grew up in Africa, but so we went to Kenya Sudan and South Sudan spent a night in Khartoum. That was interesting. Um, and we were in Kenya, and and we ended up being in Cairo for an evening, or for 24 hours about. And we met up with, with Hani. So, see, I like travel, and I like adventure and all that kind of stuff. And we, we meet up with Hani, and we spend an evening together walking through the city of Cairo, and uh, stand in Tahir Square, and he's standing and we're looking around and he's pointing at things and he's he's kind of pointing at buildings and then we're talking to this and all of a sudden he goes uh we got to go i'm like why he goes well we've been pointing at the government services building where the secret police are too much we need to move like oh okay that's a different paradigm for me to to kind of live in and we end up having um uh, an evening up on the top of our hotel and it's just a beautiful evening and hani says um I really can, is there any way that you can stay another day? I'm like, nope, nope, can't do that. And he says, well, can you come back this fall? I'm like, no, well, you know, no, I don't think so. This is just, you know, unsafe and I'm just not feeling comfortable. Now, mind you, this is in November. In January is when the Arab Spring occurred, where basically the Middle East kind of blew up for, for a long period of time. The Tahir Square that we had stood in 60 days ago was now a riot place. It was demonstrations and burnings. The hotel roof that we looked out across the Nile, and there's a a bridge that goes across the Nile, and it's the iconic picture of the Arab uprising, and it's the one where you saw trucks turned upside down and burning. That was the view that evening and the view from our hotel room, and I'm thinking, made the right call. I am not going to Egypt. This is, you know, just, just no way. I, so I felt pretty vindicated about it. You know, I'm looking, Tarshish, that was a good decision. Skip ahead another five years. See a pattern? Um, and it's now early 2016, and, and we're here at, uh, at New Creation. And Pastor Mark is uh, working his way through John. Thanks for that. Um, and all, all is fine and good, really, until we get to John 5, where um, Jesus says, or where it tells the peril, the, Jesus is talking to the paralytic man, and he says to, the, to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And I'm thinking, okay, so God wants me to do something. You know, no worries. There have been some life changes in, in our life. Um, we were... Both of our girls were gone. We were empty nesters. We had sold a business. So I had a little more time and a little more um, resources to be able to do things. We were actively involved in you know, three or four ministries and trying to do some stuff. And we had a couple of small you know, things. And I'm thinking, okay, God, so where, where in the world do you want me? Where, where do you want to use the skills that I have? And how do you want you know, to do that? And I'm thinking in the ministries uh, that, that we're involved with. Anyone want to guess who calls me on Tuesday? Yeah. So Dr. Hani calls and he says, what are you doing this fall? I'm like, um, not sure, but it's not Egypt. I can tell you that. I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, okay? God's got to whack me upside the head several times. So uh, I'm thinking, really? Really, God, this is, this, this is what you want? Mean to be thinking about, and so Honey's like, "Well, please, you know, keep praying about it." 
Of course, I talked to Brenda, and, and you know, after 30-plus years of marriage, she's pretty accustomed to me throwing some crazy ideas out there. And so she's like, well, you know, if that's where you think God might be leading you. I'm like, no, 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 you're supposed to say no. <laughs> you're supposed to help me here. <laughs> she's like, well, you know, if that's where God wants. And then the song that we sang just a minute ago, in the week between when Mark preached on on, on John 5 and John 6. If I heard that song once, I, I heard it a hundred times. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I heard it. And I'm like, really, God? You're asking me to, to, to step out onto these waves to get off the shore? I like the shore. The shore is comfortable. You know, this is, this is good. I can do this. And I kept hearing the song over and over. And then Mark starts on chapter 6, specifically John six sixteen through 17, which says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the water. That's not bad, but if you look at the cross-reference, which is Matthew, it's immediately Jesus made, I don't like that word, made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting right about there, third row, fourth chair in, and I am mad. I'm mad at him. <laughs> and I'm like, how dare you actually preach that one? And I'm mad at God. And I'm having this argument in my head. I'm listening to you too, but um, you know, I'm having this argument in my head that God, I you, you can't, you're not making me get in this boat. And and I'm looking at the story and thinking, you know, they're professional fishermen. They know what to do in a boat. Besides that, they didn't know there was a storm coming. They had no idea. They just got in the boat because that's what they were told to do. God, if you're telling me to get in this boat and go to Egypt, I know there's a storm coming. I mean, they're killing people over there. Really, you want me to get in the boat? I, I don't want to get in this boat. And it's clear... As night and day, as I sat there, I went, oh my goodness. I have a choice to be obedient or disobedient. And for me, there really wasn't much of a choice. So I said, well, I guess I got to get in the boat. We, uh, we walk out, we get in the car, and um, we're not out of the parking lot. And I say to Brenda, um think I need to go to Egypt. What do you think? And I'm hoping, oh, please say, you're crazy. She says, okay. I'm like, oh, no. She goes, I said, really? She goes, yeah. When do you think you need to go? I'm like, um, soon? She goes, well, I guess you better call Hanny tonight, huh? I'm like, all right. Three weeks later, I find myself in the city of Cairo city of 20 million people. It's the largest city in Africa or in, in, uh, in, in the Middle East and certainly the largest city in Egypt and way, way outside of my comfort zone. You know, I, I knew that we, for the 10, 12 days that I were going to be there, there'd be some really fun things we did that, that we would get to do. And, and, and some of them are here. So, of course, you get to see the, you know, the Sphinx and the, the, um, the, the pyramids of Giza and that's me. And it's a really foggy picture, but what you is the it's the plains of the Nile and it's just very very fertile fields and it's gorgeous 
And that's a typical street scene of, you know, it's not Cairo, it's one of the, the smaller towns, and um, it's kind of dark on that one, but that's the, the temples of Luxor. And go to the next one, please. Um, the one on the left, that's Ramsey's tomb. And that's the Valley of the Kings, and that's one of the temples uh, I'm there. Egypt is struggling mightily. It used to be a country with a lot of tourism. We arrived in the Valley of Kings at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was the only tourist for two hours. I had Ramses and Tut's tomb to myself, and because... They don't get many people. They took me places that normally you don't get to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm touching the hieroglyphics on Ramsey's tomb. And I'm thinking, this is so cool. This is amazing. I mean, it's just outstanding. Go ahead, the next one. And then these are just some more pictures of, of that area. And this one is, it, to give you the size of scope of that, it, it's about 30 feet tall. And it's about 150, 200 feet long. And it's individual blocks that they quarried somewhere up the Nile, floated that down, and then carried them in a mile and a half from the Nile. Slave labor does some amazing things. And it's intricately carved with all these hieroglyphics. It's just overwhelming, the beauty and the, the, the things that you can see in, in there. But I also knew that the, our primary goal was to meet with a variety of people um, to, to talk about business classes, to meet with entrepreneurs, meet and encourage people. Oh, and yeah, I said, oh, I just need you to preach at three church services. I'm like, what? No, no, no. I got the business stuff. That's cool. The other, eh, that's way out onto the waves. So, you know, some of the people we got to meet are some of the local scenes. Uh, oh, uh, more, more touristy things. That's um, Alexandria and the Mediterranean Sea where we sat and had lunch one day. And that's just the little harbor right inside of uh, of uh, there. Um, so this is typical Cairo. Um, that's me teaching a business class um, in the town of Tanta, which we'll talk about in a second. And it's Dr. Hani and I uh, having coffee in the middle of the street at midnight. Uh, yeah, and coffee, by the way, they take their coffee really seriously. I mean, coffee's at 6, 10, 1, 4, 7, and then dinner's at 9. And then you finish with coffee. It's great. I loved it. Uh, this is just some farmers in the field bringing in their crops in the morning. Um, amazingly, no ATVs, no motorcycles. Everything is moved by hand or ox or donkey. Really crazy. Um, I call them donut holes. I can't remember the Arabic name for them, but they are so good. They serve them in a little paper cup or newspaper wrapped up in powdered sugar. Go ahead. Um, again, some donkeys in the street. Uh, field. Uh, we were out walking in the in the field one morning and came across this upon this group of farmers, and you know they invited us to have coffee with them. And I thought, okay, coffee, coffee or tea, because they're boiling it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. So he takes, you know, he makes the pulls the water jug out, dunk, 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 um, boils the water, and we're talking. I I speak no Arabic, so it's a long conversation to have any kind of of, of um, interlude. So he pours, he takes, and I'm thinking, okay, great, because I can see the coffee boiling. I'm thinking, this is fine. I can drink this. It's in the middle of the field. Can't be that unsanitary. But it's boiling. So takes a cup, and he goes, oh, shakes it out, then takes the water jug, 
shakes that out and then pours my coffee cup in that and hands it to me. I'm like, oh, Lord, please, please don't let me get sick on this. But, you know, you sit there and you have coffee. And then this is a group of pastors that I got to spend some time with. So, yeah, the business stuff I had, I could do. But the rest, way too out in the ways for me. And I wish I had time to tell you a lot of stories because of the couple of times that I, years that I've been there back and forth, uh, I'd love to tell you about being tailed by the secret police in Cairo as we're trying to, I'm trying to get onto a train to go to a town called Minya, which is, um, where foreigners don't go. And so, you know, literally we're sneaking around and, you know, cause I'm, I'm pretty obvious, not a Middle Easterner, you know, and, and I'm changing my shirt and I'm putting a hat on and changing glasses and I actually literally, and I'm, I'm doing backtracks to lose my, my, my tail and I literally run into him coming up the stairs, knock him down. And I'm thinking, I think this is great. I'm like, hey, can I help you? Let me put the stuff back in your bag. Oh, your bag is empty. You're just carrying around an empty bag. Like, and trying to look like somebody that's been shopping while you're tailing me, you know, Hani's like, stop that, move on. You know, or eating food that I have no idea what it is, some of which was swimming just moments earlier, um, walking through dawn and meeting f- farmers, having coffee at midnight in cafes, standing on the banks of the Nile and rec- realizing that millennial have flowed by here and, and just thinking about all the history that's there. Or having coffee with the head of the Arabic studies at the University of Alexandria and talking about the teachings of Jesus. That puts you out there on the waves. We're teaching a class in Tanta, where two months later, a bomb went off a block and a half away. Didn't kill any of the folks that I knew, but it killed some of their family members. We're sitting with a family and looking at the bullet-pocked walls of his house, where he had to take his family, his five daughters, up onto the third floor and barricade themselves in to keep the crowd away during the uprising. There's tons of them I could tell. But in the few remaining moments I have, I, I do want to tell you about what Dr. Hani leads, the ministry that he's, he's got going there. And then I, I want to tell you a couple more stories and, and finish with my question and a challenge. Um, Dr. Hani's ministry is called Tyrannus, which is taken from Acts 19, uh, 9 through 10, where Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall. Went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word. That's the goal for Hani's ministry is to spread the word of God. And it's built on three uh, pretty simple principles. The first one is training, mentoring, and tools. Um, using the, the different tools and techniques, and Dr. Hani's a PhD in human resources and taught at the university level, and he's been able to, to create some things that are easily usable in the, the Arabic world and, uh, and to be able to get that out. And so, you know, to, to do that as a, a part of what they do. The second is church planning. Um, in the last five to seven years, Dr. Hani has been responsible for planning somewhere between 500 and 800 churches in Egypt. Can't tell you exactly how many because a church will get to 25 or 30 people and they kind of split off and then they'll create two. And a lot of these churches are in towns or in villages where it's not safe to be a Christian. It's not safe to gather more than four or five together. But he's planning 800 churches. The church is growing. And the third uh, pillar is a small business incubator. And this is to provide training to people that want to start a business or people that have started a business and try to figure out how to be more effective and more efficient and how to maybe use their skills and their business to, to spread the gospel. And it's really kind of um, that area that I've, I've been able to help with. And, and I'm and really happy to be able to do it. 
And I'm sure you can appreciate that doing these three things in a country like Egypt, these are huge goals, and especially in a country that's struggling. Inflation in Egypt right now is running about 33 to 35%, which means on something that you literally buy on Monday for a dollar is probably a buck 20 on, on Wednesday, and it may be $2 next week. Inflation is just absolutely rampant. Unemployment runs nationally about 12%. For context, the U.S. and Washington State's about 4 4.5%. But the really bad stat is that unemployment in the age 15 to 29 is 79%. That means 8 out of 10 young males, and specifically young males, don't have a job, have no prospects for having a job. Well, that creates some real challenges. So what do, that, what do people do? Well, they turn to a life of crime just to survive. They turn to radicalism because you have a teacher and a mom that says, you know the reason we're having these problems? It's because of these people. These Christians, these Jews, these Orthodox, these Catholics, they're the ones that are causing these problems. And if you haven't got a job and you're 22 and you have no prospect for having a job, that becomes a really interesting message to you. Or you get a job with, the, you try to get a job with the government. And a job with the government is not what we think of. It's kind of like welfare. I was talking to a guy. I said, so what do you do? He goes, oh, I work for the National Railroad. I'm like, great. What do you do for the National Railroad? He's like, I work for the National Railroad. I'm like, okay, lost in translation. Um, what function do you do when you go to the office to, you know, for the railroad? He goes, I go to the office once a month to get my check. I'm like, ooh, okay, different concept. We help them create a business. And really, that's where I've been uh, blessed to, to, to spend some time. And I'd like to tell you the story about Antonios. And this is Antonios and his family, uh, his wife Amira and uh, his little son Joseph. When I was there a couple of years ago, Antonius had gotten this idea to sell water filters. And he lives out in a town called Abacorcos, which is about a four-hour train ride from Cairo and a two-hour car ride out into the countryside. So pretty remote area. And they have a municipal water system, but the water coming out of the tap, ooh, um, it's, I'm not sure if it's even brown, clearer than the brown that came out of the, the ground. But... He found a water filter, and he, reckoned, and he put it in his house, and he realized that suddenly his family was getting sick less often. So he bought a couple more, put one in his father's house and one in his father-in-law's house, and miraculously, the whole family was getting healthier. And he's like, I think I've got a business here. So he had put in a couple of them. I, I show up on the scene, and he starts to ask me some questions. He says, so... What do you think about this? And I said, well, I think this is a great idea. I said, well, you know, how much are you, you know, how much are you buying them for? What are you selling them for? You know, typical business guy. I'm like, mm, right to the bottom line. And he says, well, I buy them for, you know, in U.S. dollars, about a hundred bucks. I said, how much are you selling them for? He goes, you know, um, $120, $130. I'm like, um, do you have any competition? He says, yeah, I've got competitors who are selling them. I said, what are they selling them for? He goes, 200 250 I'm like, okay, number one, raise your price. That's a pretty obvious one. You can raise your price to 150, 180, 100, you know, there, and you're not gouging, and you're under competition. You can get market share. This is a good thing. So tell me about the filters themselves. He says, well, the filters need to be changed out about every 45 days. I'm like, ding, this is a great business. The, th the things that I know about doing in a business world is how to build recurring revenue streams. I'm like, here's what, here's what I would encourage you to think about doing. Get a bunch of these filters and sell like crazy. I mean, sell like crazy. And 
then in 45 to 60 days, go back to the client and you sell them a new filter, you know, and, and it's a filter is probably 20 or $30. And, um, he's like, that's a great idea. I said, well, here's the deal I'll make you. I'll buy your first 10 filters. You get, or, or first 10, um, water filtration systems. You get all the money from that. Here's my, here's my rationale for this. I want you to sell like crazy and I want you to tithe what you get. It's 100% profit. He's like, okay, I can do that. I come home. I don't think 30 days goes by, and, and Dr. Honey calls me up and goes, guess what happened? I said, Antonio sold them all. He goes, yeah. I said, all right, take another. You know, I left you some money. Why don't you buy the next 10 for him? He does. 30 days goes by. I get this phone call. He says, guess what? I said, Antonio sold them all. He says, yeah, he's just going crazy. I said, great. Take, take some more money and, and, and sell, you know, give it to you. He goes, no, he won't take any more of your money. He told me to tell you thank you, but he's not taking any more of your money. He's made enough that he can do his own inventory. Like, praise God. Come forward a year, about, um, which is when this picture was taken. I get to see Antonio. So I'm like, tell me about your business. He goes, oh, he says, this is amazing. He says, yeah, instead of ordering in tens, my last order last week was 500. He says, I have, I sell. I've got one guy to help sell. I have three guys that are installing these. And I've got one guy that does nothing but ride around all day on a motorcycle with a backpack and saddlebags on his, on his bike and changing out filters. He says, I've changed four families' lives. I'm making so much money. He says, but the really, really cool thing is I get to spend a day a week at the church and we've started a VBS and we've started a small group. And I'm hoping that over the next two years, I can spend two days a week at the church and helping my pastor. That's pretty cool. The sad part of that is, or of it is, is the window for opportunity for Westerners or for things like that to happen is closing. A couple of years ago when I was there, I thought there was a three to five window. When I was there in March of this year, I was thinking, based on some of the political pressures and, and stuff going on in country, it was, um, I was thinking 18 to 24 months. Right now, I'm thinking the window's even less, given what's some of the real issues in, in Egypt with inflation out of control, the military getting a little unsettled, some of the economic pressures from the world, some of the things the U.S. is doing. Um, I think that window's closing. And let me ex- uh, give you another example, and this is another story. Uh, and this is the story of Father Joseph. So we're in a, we went to a, a town called Sohag, which again is like six hours from Cairo, two hours out, and then, and then you know, just out in the, in the middle of nowhere. And we get there late at night, and it's the three of us are traveling together, and so we throw our bags in our room. We're staying at a Catholic guest house. And uh, we throw our bags, and we come downstairs because we want to go get dinner. It's 10 o'clock. I mean, it's just about time for appetizers. And as we walk out, there are two priests sitting in the corner over there. And as we walk by, the one looks at and says, Dr. Hani. Hani's like, Father Joseph. Hugs every around. If you know anything about Middle East culture, you just can't go, Hey, we'll see you later. We'll catch up with you tomorrow. It's now sit down. They have to bring out the tea and you sit there. And we have this conversation of which I'm just sitting there going, because it's all in Arabic, Arabic and French. And, um, and, but suddenly I realize that they're talking about me. You know, A, they're pointing at me and B, I hear my name. I'm like, Hey, they're talking about me. And it is very intense. I'm like, okay. So we finish 
And we get up to go, and, and Father Joseph walks up to me and sticks out his hand. And so I go to shake his hand, and he grabs my hand, and he pulls me. And um, personal space in, in the Middle East is a little different than personal space here in, in America. You know, we are this far apart. I mean, I could probably smoke the same cigarette that he's got in the side of his mouth. Like, I mean, we are really, really close. <laughs> And he's speaking to me in rapid-fire Arabic. And I've got Dr. Hani sitting on my ear translating as we go. And I'm going to tell you what he said. And this is not to be a political statement, because I'm going to tell you what, Dr. Hunt, uh, what, what, um, what Father Joseph said. He says, when you get back to America, I would like you to tell President um, Obama that he needs to act. We are dying here every day. Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelicals, we are being killed every day, and your country needs to act. How do you respond to that? So I said to, to Honey, I said, please tell Father Joseph that if I had that opportunity to talk to the president, I, I, would, I would love to, I would carry that message for him. But in the meantime, please tell him that I will be praying for him and his flock, that they would be encouraged, they would be strengthened, and that God would provide for them. He translates it. Father Joseph gets this huge smile, gives me a big bear hug. We walk out. We're walking across the courtyard, and um, Hani goes, uh, I should probably tell you the rest of the story. Great. He goes, it's, it's really not Father Joseph, it's Bishop Joseph. I'm like, okay, good to know. If we see him tomorrow, you know, good, good to know. We get out the courtyard, turn left onto the street. We take about five steps. He goes, well, I probably should tell you, like, all of the story. I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's Cardinal Joseph. I'm like, oh, he's the cardinal for all of Egypt. Had just come back from Rome, College of Cardinals, had elected the Pope. He said, you don't know what you said to him, do you? I'm like, said I'd pray for him. He goes, yeah, you said you'd pray for his flock. His flock is Egypt. You have committed, he says, and what he said to me was, you have, you, you, committed to pray for Egypt because out of the passion of your heart, you now are praying for Egypt. Think back 10 years ago where I'm like, ooh, can't imagine going there. Fast forward a year, I'm, I'm back in Egypt, and um, Father Joseph, Cardinal Joseph, heard that I was coming. And he called Hani and said, would you have Foster come, and I, I will bring my 12 bishops in. Interesting number, eh? Um, I, I will bring my 12 bishops in, and I'd like Foster to spend a day teaching my bishops how they might be able to teach their parishioners to integrate faith and business. We, we, don't, we know the, the, the religious side of this, but we don't understand how to put that in practice in Egypt. Well, we don't do so well in America a lot of times either. So I said, yeah, I'll go. Incredibly intimidated to speak in front of a bunch of, uh, of bishops. The night before we go... We get a phone call that says, um, you cannot come. Secret police have found out that Foster is in country, that, um, and, and they know you're coming here, and it would not be safe. In fact, Hani, it's not safe for you to come either. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to Hani. He was told he couldn't even come to Alexandria because the, the Coptic church is under a no-meat order, basically. The window is closing. I got one more, one more quick story, and then uh, my question and, and challenge for you. 
So we met with Father Joseph in the evening. We're in the town of Sohag. Get up the next morning and we, we're going to teach our class. And it's a, it's the, the way they, they bring people in and it's, it's different, um, styles based on different towns and what we're, we're going to go do. Um, and this morning it was about a three hour class and kind of traditionally the way we, we would do it is that Hani and one of his other, um, teachers would, would talk for a couple hours and then I'd have the last hour to talk about stuff. And I would usually talk for 30 minutes and then Hani and I would do a Q and A for about 15 minutes. And then we'd open it up for people to ask whatever questions they want because they don't get to see many foreigners. And so it's always interesting the questions you get. So we do our spiel. And I've been in the country 10, 12 days, gotten to understand some of the pressures, some of the, the challenges, um, uh, certainly for the Christian group, but specifically for Christian young women. Christian women, because they don't wear head covering. So they're readily identifiable. And it creates a lot of pressure. It creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of challenges for them. And so we're sitting there, and we do our, our talk. And this is a group of about 40 to 50 people, three-quarters of which are female, which is, is not uncommon. And about a third of them are Muslim. You can tell by the, the, the dress. And in a group of 40 to 50, there's at least one and probably two, maybe even three secret police that are sitting there. That, that's just reality. We finish, go to Q&A, and a gal, dead center, stands up, says, yes, I have, I'd like to ask a question. Perfect English. She's obviously a, 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 an Egyptian national. Uh, I spent lunch with her uh, a, a little bit after that and found out she's a 24-year-old um, English teacher in a school. She teaches 47 to 11-year-old boys. Yeah. She says, yes, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, okay. She said, I would like to know what you've learned in life. Yep, that's, that was kind of my response. Like, um, so, so do you mean business? Because that's what we were talking about. I usually talk a little bit about my family and marriage. She goes, yes, I would like to know what you have learned in life. And, you know, in, in milliseconds, your brain just starts to sort through all of this. And you're like, wow, okay. And the reality is, I'm thinking, in two hours, I'm out of town. You know, I'm, I'm leaving here in two hours, and in, in 24, 30 hours, I'm out of the country. There's not much that's going to happen to me. They might just move my exit up a little bit, but I, I'm safe. But the three or four people that are standing up front with me are going to bear the responsibility for what I say. But I can't walk away from that. I can't walk away from that opportunity. So I said, well, if I had to tell you one thing, I would say that life is not about power, perks, or possessions. Those are all fun. But it's about relationships. And it's about people. And for me, those are, I first have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you can have one too. Second is my family. That's my wife and my children and my, my immediate family. And the third is the, the friends and the folks that I get to associate with. And I, I'm not saying that if you, if you, when I do that, that everything always goes well. I mean, I've been married 30 years. I can tell you it doesn't always go well, right? 
but it gives me a, a base of reference in that order to say my relationship is first with God and you can have that. And then things go from there. So let me ask you, here's my question. Where does he want you to be brave? Maybe for some of you, it's just, you're sitting there going, yeah, I want to go to Egypt. Or you're sitting there thinking, oh, thank God, somebody else is going to Egypt. You know, I'll pray for you. But where's God asking to be brave? Maybe it's Egypt. Maybe it's on the Mexico trip. Maybe it's with Sydney to you know, Papua New Guinea. I'm going to guess that for most of us, um, it's, it's where you are. Mead, Mount Spokane, Whitworth, Spokane Falls, the hundreds of employers that are represented here, the Friday night bowling group, Tuesday coffee, whatever. But God, where is God asking you to be brave? Where is he asking you to step out on the wall, away from the shore? And my last thing is, here's my challenge. Get in the boat. Don't be like Jonah and run the other way. Don't be like me and take 10 years to figure out what God is telling you to do. Are you willing to get in the boat? Are you willing to be brave? Because he makes us brave. He calls us out beyond the shore and into the waves. He's given us promises that are as true today as they were thousands of years ago when he did it. Are you willing to be brave and get in the boat? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the passion that you give each of us. And Lord, I would ask that uh, you would make us brave, that you would challenge us to, to look to you, and not at the waves that are crashing around or the shore that we're leaving behind. But Lord, I pray that we would be brave, that we would listen, that we would get in the boat, and we would be obedient. Thank you, Lord. Amen.